Well, great, Pam, thank you. Oh, they have been. It's an interesting experience. Uh, it's a little bit like having your your kid uh, kidnapped by the Manson family. You don't know how it's going to work out. Um, and some experiences were better than others. But you know what I what I take from that is that the book is my creation. Nothing done on film can change that. So if if it turns out to be a, a strong film, then I'm all the more grateful. But it doesn't in any way detract or alter the experience of writing the book or the experience people will have reading the book. Oh, absolutely, man. I think that there's no better training uh, for a writer uh, than legal practice. If you think about it, if you're a trial lawyer, you have to arrange a messy bunch of facts into a coherent narrative. You have to humanize your clients for a jury full of all sorts of different people. You have to deal with a judge. Um, and you, you see the worst and best moments of people's life put on display in this quirky and unpredictable way. Also, you're, if you're writing uh, for judges in their law courts, you're writing for the world's most jaded audience. And you have to learn to write quickly uh, and clearly and well. So if you want to be a storyteller, it's, it's great if you're a lawyer. Nothing bad about it. Well, you know, and you and you try to make it punchy. You try to make it interesting. Um, and I mean, I write a lot. I, I write. I tend to write a long novel, but I want to make every scene clear, concise, and full of human interest. I mean, this book is about some serious issues of race. It's about being trapped in a vortex of a racially charged trial for capital murder, but it's also about family, about parents and children. Um, 
you know, love um, lost and found in the kind of things we all experience as part of a family, which can be pretty complicated. Well, one, one thing is to get the character of Malcolm Hill right. Malcolm Hill is an 18-year-old young man, a voting rights worker, who happens to be the son of America's most important voting rights leader. Uh, so he both feels an obligation to his family legacy, and he's also a target for racists who don't like his black mother and don't think that black people should be voting. Um, and so he's driving along in Georgia uh, late at night on a dark railroad. Uh, he's a little buzzed because he's been drinking beer with his friends after a hard day of, of work trying to, trying to engage voters. Uh, and he is stopped by a white deputy sheriff with no witnesses. Now, the way I do this chapter is there's only one survivor, and that's Malcolm. So only Malcolm knows what really happened. So when he's charged with capital murder, the only people who know what happened besides Malcolm are the reader, nobody else, not his mom, not his defense lawyer, uh, not anyone. And so you have the agony of a shared knowledge with, the cent with a central character who is you know, in, under threat of his life now, because uh, the death penalty is in play here. And you feel what he feels because you alone know what he knows. It was a very, so I don't try to keep what happened mysterious. Rather, I try to engage readers as sort of walking with Malcolm as he goes through these increasingly perilous events. Well, another piece of the puzzle uh, comes from my introduction to the three characters. And the first thing there's, there's Malcolm Hill, the defendant, uh, Allie Hill, his brilliant charismatic mother, and a white congressman from, from Massachusetts, Chase Brevard, who seems at first to have nothing to do with these two people at all. But what we learn pretty quickly, and I don't think this is a big spoiler alert, what Chase learns for the first time is that Malcolm is his son. So suddenly this single congressman from Massachusetts realizes that he has a black son in Georgia on trial for capital murder. And so what the Harvard section does is introduce how um, Chase fell in love with Allie and how they separated um, and it lays down a whole basis, emotional basis for what they go through as the reunited parents of this son uh, who is now subject to uh, the potential for the death penalty.
Well, and what I try to really capture is the human impact of this, uh, which is amplified by the fact that Ali is a public figure, very controversial, loath on uh, the political right. And so suddenly this becomes a plaything for the media, for ambitious politicians. And so it's not an obscure fact. It's a nationally televised murder trial. And how it feels to be the defendant, how it feels to be the defendant's mother, the defendant's father, how that affects the judge, the jurors, the prosecutor, all of that. Um, it's, it, I really try to place the, the reader right in the middle of a very, you know, a series of fraught and very complicated events. Yeah. Well, I think that mostly it's a good thing that we know what goes on our, our courtrooms. I think it's a check on uh, judges. I think it's a check on prosecutors. Uh, I think as awful as it was, that we learned a lot of painful but important lessons from the George Floyd trial, for example. Um, so I think it is best that there be some sunlight in the in political process. The problem with that is, as I dramatize in trial, is it also can create terrible public prejudice uh, against the defendant um, in this case. And because you know we have this young black man uh, accused of killing a white sheriff's deputy who a lot of people consider to have been a hero. Um, it creates enormous difficulties for him in getting a fair trial. So it's, I mean, on, on balance, I'm in favor of us knowing what goes on in the courtroom, but it is not an unmixed blessing. Well, he, well, here's the problem. You can gag the prosecutor, you can gag, gag the cops, you can gag the defense lawyers, but you can't gag, gag Tucker Carlson. Uh, um, you know, and, and that's really the problem. And I have a brief appearance by a right-wing media figure who does everything he can to create prejudice in, in, in the, the country at large against this defendant. Um, so, and, and there's not a damn thing you can do about that, unfortunately.
Ja, ja, ja. Yeah, absolutely. And that is really unfortunate. And in my case, you know, Malcolm is a is a young black man with pronounced views on white racism is just the perfect target for right wing media uh, and right wing politicians. And that would happen. I even have the uh, in, I even have a scene with a um, former president who remarkably resembles another recent former president using this trial as a political football uh, to sort of promote his political comeback. Not, uh, not exactly an imaginative leap, I must say, given the reality of what's going, going on in our politics. Yep. No, I did. I did civil trial law, but uh, I me, mean, I know what it is. I know what it is. To, I know what it is to ask a question. Um, and, yeah. 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 Well, here's the first thing. I mean, I was a lawyer. I know how to ask a question. I know how to plan a case. I know how to give a closing argument. I know how to put all this stuff on. But to do this right, this is a trial which takes place in rural Georgia. So I went to Georgia. I interviewed all sorts of people, black and white. I talked to prosecutors. I talked to defense lawyers. I talked to law enforcement people. I talked to forensics experts. Uh, I talked to uh, retired judges, black and white. And so I did everything I could, and I researched the law, so I did everything I could to know exactly how a trial would go down um, in Georgia and what and, and what tactics the defense and prosecution would use um, to either advance the prosecution or to exonerate Malcolm. And so, you know, this trial is, is, is very much rooted in the reality of what a trial like that would be. And so I was very grounded in that before I sat down to, to put on the opening statement, the prosecution case, the defense case, the closing statement, all the tactical jockeying back and forth, the judge's rulings, everything. Um, I mean, I carefully thought it through, Pam, before I committed pen to paper. No, it, it wouldn't be. The jury pool would be different. The judges would have a different philosophy. The law would be different. For example, some, there are some quirks in, of Georgia law which made things tougher on a defendant like Malcolm than they might be someplace else. And I got all of that. I mean, I really try to give my, my, my readers a realistic experience out of respect for the law, but also particularly out of respect for them.
Oh, thank you, Pam. <laughs> well, I certainly intend to in one way or the other. I sometimes do that for through commentary and sometimes through fiction. My uh, my late friend Pat Conroy once said, Fiction's, fiction is a place I go to tell the truth. Um, and I agree with Pat. And I think if you can tell a good story about people that you actually care about, then I think you can also get people to think about social issues in a different way. Um, and so, you know, I think fiction's, I think fiction's a great vehicle for that. You know, if you think about it, there's a great tradition of social realism. You go back to like old white guys, like Emil Zola or, or, or uh, Charles Dickens, who wrote about things very different than what they experienced as a member of their class. And it was based upon research and actually going out and finding out what the lives of others are like so they could translate that for their readership. I think there's a real place for social realism in their fiction. I've, I've, I've always tried to write from that standpoint, um, and I may well continue to do that. One, one of my favorites. <clears throat> yeah. Bless you. Yeah. yeah, enough, enough. I'm not, I'm not sure what's next is that my uh, kids and grandkids are coming to Martha's Vineyard and I get to, get to watch them splash around the swimming pool. But I'm going to take a long time and really think about what's next. This has been, this novel has been quite an experience for me, not just the writing of it, but also the whole controversy over whether white people can or should write across the lines of racial identity. Um, Yeah, I mean, you, empathy and imagination are the two biggest tools 
that a writer has. If you're going to write outside your identity, then you had damn well better do the work to understand what it is like to walk in someone else's shoes. It's You have to know it's a challenge, but the better you do it, the richer our broader stream of literature. Until recently, it has not been controversial to write outside your personal identity. And indeed, if we segregated um, um, literature in ethnic neighborhoods, we could only write about ourselves or people who we think are like us. Um, and that's a very sterile form of literature. I mean, to, to, does literature really need another a novel about, uh, you know, anxiety-filled white professionals in Manhattan or Brooklyn. I, I, I don't, I don't think we do. Um, in, in what? Right. Right. Well, you know, let, let me, I think that's an important point. So let me tell you how I went about the business of, of constructing a character of Allie Hill, um, who is the mom uh, and the woman who uh, the white congressman Chase Brevard most loves. So what did I do? I portray her as you say at Harvard. So I, I, I found through my friend, Henry Louis Gates, I, I, I found three black women at Harvard who went to school at that time, went to Harvard. And I asked them everything about their experience, how it felt going in, how it felt at the time and how they think about it afterwards. Um, I went to Georgia and interviewed black community leaders, voting rights leaders, politicians, um, law enforcement people, lawyers, anyone involved with the whole question of voting rights. Um, and, I, and also about how it felt to live in that environment because that's where she's from. And then I went to the successor to Stacey Abrams as the head of the New Georgia Project, the leading voting rights group in the state. I asked her everything about her personal and professional experience, including the prevalence of threats to her life and all the security problems she had. All of that went into constructing Allie Hill. So Allie Hill is not just somebody that I invented uh, out of my notion of what a black voting rights leader would be if she were a dynamic woman. I went and talked to a dynamic woman who was one. I interviewed all sorts of people who could tell me about what could go into the making of such a person. And so, I mean, I, I mean the book, book only works if Allie works. And I really invested my heart, soul, my heart and soul on making sure that she did. Oh, absolutely. It was fun to, fun to be back first time since 20, 2017, Pam. So thank you. Yeah.